So we are in John chapter 20. Uh, we started this chapter a few weeks back. What we're going to be doing this morning is looking at verses 19 through 31. So let me read. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the evening of Easter Sunday. Disciples are gathered uh, together. We're assuming in the same upper room, and, uh, and it's noted that the door is locked. And we know that we lock doors for reasons. <laughs> One time, sometimes it's to keep people in, and other times it's to keep people out. And so the assumption here is this, is they're behind closed doors because these men are still very much in fear of the possibility that they might be next, that they might be arrested, and they might be tried, and they might be crucified along with Jesus, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we assume here that the door's locked because they're gathered there uh, in fear. We're presuming at this time as well that Judas has committed suicide. So now that we're down from 12 to 11... As we studied last week, we know that Mary Magdalene had had an encounter with the risen and resurrected Christ earlier in the day. Remember, she at first thought he was the gardener because she couldn't believe that it could possibly be Jesus, but in fact it was, and she came to that understanding. Now, Jesus miraculously appears in their midst. Because remember, the door was locked, and we don't have any evidence here or any note here that they unlocked the door to let Jesus come in. So one, either one or two things happened. Either that happened, it's just not mentioned here, and that's, I guess, a possibility. 
But Jesus either passed through the locked door or just suddenly materialized in their midst. Can you imagine seeing something like that happen? You would think that if you had ever had any doubts before, then those doubts would just evaporate away into nothing. <laughs> How many times do we say seeing is knowing? Surprisingly, the, the Apostle Paul will actually provide us with the most exhaustive list of all those people who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection before his ascension into heaven, he writes this. He says, he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then he appeared to the twelve, which is what we're looking at right now. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. as if saying, if you don't believe me, go find these people and they will tell you face to face. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, and we presume that's uh, James, the, uh, the, the Lord's brother. And then to all the apostles, one of the... Uh, I just want to mention this so I don't forget, and that is it, it appears as though one of the requirements for being an apostle was that you actually had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. So that door was not open to just anybody and everybody. But last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Very often, we think it would be so much easier to believe if we happen to be an eyewitness, and there certainly is a lot of truth to that. There seems to be truth in the idea that seeing really is believing. That we don't have that advantage. I'm going to get more into this in a little while, but the reality is this, this is the most amazing things that you and I believe these things, these unbelievable things almost. And we have never witnessed them with our own, eye, our own ears or our eyes. He brings them a message of peace. Can you imagine? Their life has been in absolute turmoil for days. Their world has been up, turned upside down on its head. Peace be with you. The first words they hear from the mouth of the Lord resurrected. Can you imagine what their world had been like over the last week? Virtually everything turned on its head. Everything seems to have come completely apart. They've experienced everything but peace over the last week. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus comes to them with a message of peace. Peace that they're only going to be able to find in him. Peace they're only going to be fine in knowing of his resurrection. 
We also know this from the, the gospel according to Luke, that Jesus had appeared. We don't know exactly. There were two people. We don't know exactly who, in fact, they were. Could have been two of these, possibly, maybe not, on the road to Emmaus. So these were not the only times or the only appearances of Jesus to people. But just remember this, there is a biblical standard for establishing truth based upon the testimony of witnesses. In every case, the only requirement is two people. So I just want to remind us this morning that uh, we have way more than two people who testified to the reality of the resurrected Christ. Lots and lots and lots more than that. And even though these men have had doubts about Jesus being actually resurrected, those doubts have now been laid to rest. Jesus even showed them his hands and his side. Whether they were still open wounds, who knows? Were they partly healed up, who knows? Or were there only scars left there at this point? We don't know. But here's the evidence. It's not that you're seeing someone who looks like Jesus. It is that you are actually seeing the resurrected Christ. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. John's version of what we call the Great Commission. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. The name apostle literally means one who is sent. Jesus has spent the last three years preparing these, three, these 11 guys to carry out that great commission. At the point of Christ's death, and then his resurrection, the news was beginning to spread. But at the same time, relatively few people in the whole of the ancient Near East knew anything about Christ at that point. But you and I live on the other side of history, and we understand this, that these apostles were faithful in doing exactly what Jesus called them to do. Because Christianity spread through the ancient Near East like a raging wildfire. During their time of ministry. I would imagine there's never been a time since that the church has grown so rapidly. In a specific period of time. 
And what does that tell us? It tells us that these men were true to their calling. That they actually did what Christ had called them to do. They went forth, they left family, they left friends, they left home, they left professions, they left everything this world had to offer to follow him wherever he would carry them. And they faithfully did that, all of them. There's a sense in which you and I are here this morning in part because of the faithfulness of the apostles to their calling. And likewise, every generation of the church is called in like manner. We still send missionaries on the foreign mission field, and they're in desperate need of more. MTW a few years ago came out with this idea, and that is that they asked the churches to pray about committing 2% of their congregations to foreign mission work. Measly 2%. When I think about these things, I always remember Michael and Cindy Erb. And, and let me tell you, even today, Michael is one of my closest and dearest friends. We had grown very close to the Herb family, and, and, and we babysit Alex and Natasha when they were little, and you know, and that sort of thing. And, and our, our, our families became intertwined during those years that they were here. I love Michael and Cindy unbelievably. And when I talk with Michael, it's just like I saw him yesterday. It's this kind of friendship that you have. A real brotherhood. But let me tell you, when they came to me that Sunday after church and they told me what they wanted to do, there was a part of me that was grieved deeply. But at the same time, I was rejoicing. Because I, I knew this, and they will both tell you this, that they love Springs Presbyterian Church. They love it. The congregation here. They consider you to be family, and some of you probably have never even met them. But doing this sort of thing means there is costly things sometimes. But it's all about mission. It's all about Christ's mission. If we don't have people who are willing to go, what's going to happen to the gospel? It's going to sit and settle where it is. And it should, should be a reminder to all of us that, in fact, that we share personally in spreading this gospel. Maybe not in Honduras, maybe not in Uganda. That we all live in neighborhoods and we all live in communities and we all have a circle of people that we know. And I hope within that circle some of those people are, are, are Christians. We need those. We need those relationships with other believers. As a matter of fact, I would say this. I really hope and pray that your closest relationships with people are always relationships that you have with other believers. 
but I do hope that the circle that you move in is larger than just your Christian brothers and sisters. Start looking for opportunities to tell people about Christ. They're out there. You had some this week. I can almost promise you that. And the question is, did you take advantage of them or did you just kind of walk away? Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is the profession of every single believer. Some to a much larger degree for certain. But everyone to some degree. He said this to them. He, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Not the first time that, God, that John has mentioned the Holy Spirit in his gospel, is it? All the way back in chapter 3, his conversation, or, or, or the conversation uh, that Jesus had with. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the same Nicodemus who was one of the two that went in took care of loving care of the body of Christ when they took him down from the cross and placed him in the tomb. And that's where he had said to Nicodemus, Jesus said this, that, that you must be born again or you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. And he made it very clear that that rebirth doesn't come from you. It's not you determining that you're going to be born again. It is God determining that you will be born again. And the power to do that only comes from God. It's what we're, we also call regeneration. It's a change. It's a real change that takes place in you. You were one way one before and now you're different. John the Baptist went about preaching. He said this, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself. And he had told them back in John chapter 14, By the, uh, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. That as these, these guys had followed Jesus around Palestine and sat under his teaching for all these years, they were not alone. The Holy Spirit was there in the middle of all that. But I think that we're safe to assume at this point that they have all experienced being born again by the Spirit. That's something that has already taken place in every one of their lives. That's not what is going on here. And we know this, if we read into the book of Acts, we're going to find that this great event called Pentecost takes place, or the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles and other people gathered there. 
in a very, very powerful and, and mighty act on God's part. So what are we to do with this? Is, is, is this what's going on here? And then Pentecost is something later, just like a second giving of the Holy Spirit to the apostles? Well, you would, if you read the theologian, you would find all different kinds of, you know, estimations about what was going on here. Sproul says this, that he was equating his breath with the giving of the Holy Spirit, an object lesson about what was going to happen in the very near future on the day of Pentecost. I don't very often disagree with him, but this may be an example where I, maybe I do. Because I really do believe that this was an empowering act on the part of Jesus. A beginning of preparation for these guys. And what took place at Pentecost was a greater giving of the Holy Spirit. A greater empowerment of the Holy Spirit. At the very least, this was symbolic of what would take place at Pentecost. If I ask you a question, what is the disciple Thomas most noted for? What would you say? <laughs> what is his real name? You know, we, all, we don't just call him Thomas. We always call him what? We call him Downing Thomas, right? He didn't happen to be there. We don't know what he was doing. I'm not going to speculate on where Thomas was, but Thomas wasn't there, so he didn't experience this. But then later, the disciples told him about this, and he said, basically, I'm, there's no way I'm going to believe unless I see him with my own eyes, and I can actually put my hand in his wounds. How would you like to be called... Doubting John or doubting Alice. He would believe Jesus had been resurrected only after he heard with his own ears and saw with his own eyes. We hit on this last week, and that is this. It, you know, this, these are amazing stories that we're reading here, right? If they were in some other book, you could see them as maybe being fairy tales or story tales. But we know that this stuff is real. It's reality. I think there is something even more amazing than what we see going on with the disciples, apostles at this point. And that is you. And that is me. Do you understand that there's a sense in which our faith has to be greater than the faith of the apostles? 
because they saw with their eyes and they heard with their ears, you and I don't, and yet we believe it, and we've, we've put all of our hope in stock in that truth. The reality is this, is either we really do know this to be the reality, or you and I are idiots, or we're just simply crazy, or simple-minded people. Because when you become a Christian, you're not giving in just a little bit. You give your whole self into it. It's not just some insurance policy for you to get into heaven and then you go about living your life in any other manner that you want. This is your life. It becomes the, soul, the center of your life, the focal point of everything you are and everything that you do. And it should just blow our minds. It should amaze every one of us that we believe it to the degree that we do. Without ever seeing, without ever hearing. You want to see a miracle of God, you don't have to look any further than yourself. true for all of us Christ is what has made us different not us he has done it I mean it really is remarkable that we are gathered here this morning Professing the faith that we have. The world makes fun of us. A bunch of simpletons. Wishful thinkers. Have you ever thought about this? That there's a sense in which our faith. The faith that's required of us is even greater than the faith of the apostles. Jesus says this, he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There you go. You've been wondering where you are in this story as it's unfolded. There you are. That is you. That is me too. Have you ever thought something like, boy, it really would be much easier to believe if I could see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears or touch with my own hands? Remember these words of Jesus Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.
You are a miracle. So am I. Paul will let her write, late, later write, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Are you listening? Are you hearing? Our Presbyterian denomination, Presbyterian tradition holds a very high idea of the place and part of preaching in the life of the Christian. There are a lot of the denominations today in churches where preaching is becoming less and less of the central part of what goes on. That's not us. Because we believe this, that preaching truly involves the moving of the Holy Spirit, both in the one who preaches and also in those who are listening to what is being said. That as we're gathered this morning and we're doing what we do every Sunday morning, that we're not the only participants, that the Holy Spirit, in fact, is here in the midst. And the Holy Spirit, if I am truly preaching God's word, I'm called to do this, then let me tell you, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is speaking through me. And if he's not, then I have got no business being where I am. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is moving in you. I can see it on your face, even if you can't. And there's a sense in which you could say that preachers who really preach, as God's called, are in essence mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, if what we've described here this morning is not taking place, then I have not preached a sermon yet in 28 years. If this is just me standing before you every Sunday, well, not every Sunday now because Mike's filling in every now and then, but Understand that there's a distinction or distinct difference between preaching and teaching. Teaching is an element of preaching. But that's not all it is. Preaching is God speaking to us through His words. And through his spirit.
Real preaching is life-changing. Sometimes we think it's just kind of like a pep rally. We go to church on Sunday morning so I can get pumped up to get me through the week. Or sometimes we come to church with an entirely wrong idea that God told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. I don't necessarily really want to be here this morning or go this morning or, or whatever. But we do it nonetheless sometimes. See, I would say to you this morning that the church today in the world is starving for many things, and one of those is good, solid Bible preaching. You see, there are a lot of people out there who believe, who are church people, who believe that the only thing that the preacher is doing is just teaching me a particular lesson that he kind of learned from the Bible as he was going through it this week. You need to understand that the, 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 the Holy Spirit speaks through those who truly are preaching. But you understand this, that the preachers are not, are not inerrant. That we make mistakes. And let me just tell you this. There's some things I've said in the past that I wish, like, I'll get out. I could just grab and shove back into my mouth. And sometimes you get up here and you're nervous. And, you know, and when you're nervous, you say things that you wish you didn't have said before. And that sort of thing. But I want you to give some thought to this this week. How great is your faith, though you have not seen and you have not heard directly. You are remarkable. You are very special. Because God does not enlighten everyone to his truth. But he's done that for you. That even though you haven't seen and even though you haven't heard, you believe with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. You are the greatest miracle you have ever known and perhaps ever will.